0: Today is June 1st, 2010, and my guest is the writer, Daniel Okrent. His latest book just out is Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Dan, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Your book is a marvelous social history of much more than prohibition. It's really a portrait of America between 1870 and, and, 19, and the 1930s. Uh, it's beautifully paced. It's written with great style. I learned way too many things from the book to talk about in a single hour, but we'll do the best we can. One of the things I learned was how much Americans drank in the late 19th century and early 20th, and another thing I learned was how much passion there was against it. Talk about First, talk about the drinking. Uh, how much drinking was there in America in general terms?
1: Well, we were drowning in this stuff. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the Republic, um, 1630, the uh, even before the Republic, I should say, Uh, 1630, the boat that brings John Winthrop to the Massachusetts Bay Colony had more beer in its hold than water. So even the Puritans did their share. Uh, By uh, 1775, uh, alcohol was so firmly established in American life that George Washington decreed that every member of the Continental Army would get a daily ration of four ounces of whiskey. Uh, We begin to get the the government's dependence upon whiskey um, in the 1790s. When Alexander Hamilton institutes the excise tax on whiskey, which he put there because he knew it was the one thing that was being consumed throughout the the uh, the, the young nation, um, and then it gets bad. It's not just that everybody's drinking, but the quantity goes up uh, horribly um, in 1830, which was the peak, or I suppose you could say it was also the nadir, the depths of uh, of drinking. Uh, but we drank more then than that at any other moment. The uh, average American consumes somewhat over seven gallons of pure alcohol a year. That's the equivalent of 90 fifths of 80-proof liquor, uh, nearly two bottles a week. And if you consider That's that a per lot of people, person, yeah, <laughs> per person, per person over fifteen, but if you consider that a lot of people didn't drink at all, there have always been abstainers among us. Uh, those who were drinking were doing a lot of drinking; they were doing more than their share. Obviously. They
0: had to pick up the slack from those other folks. They had, yeah,
1: somebody's got to do it. Um, but the, you know, the social consequences of this were were horrible. Even though you know, the, the, it, it's not that the drinking became so extreme without there being some good reason for it. Uh, The primary reason, really, for there being so much, uh, for it being so widespread, was the bad quality of water, Right, Uh, and one could be safe with a distilled beverage, obviously, but you don't need seven and a half gallons of pure alcohol a year uh, to to slake your thirst. The the advent of the saloon on the frontier, and also in the industrial parts of the cities as the Industrial Revolution was beginning, uh, makes liquor not simply available, but it makes something that... uh, uh, enables the, the drinking man, and men were doing uh, by far the largest share of the drinking. Uh, it makes drinking too much a part of his life. You know, the saloon was everything from a hiring hall to a men's club to a, a place where one could get a bed in the shower uh, to a place where one could get a prostitute, uh, where one could escape from the toils and travails of daily life. And once in the saloon, the drinking uh, didn't stop. Um, And this really leads to the beginnings of an anti-drinking movement, which was uh, in behalf of women um, left behind or put upon by their husbands, uh, excessive drinking at a time when women had no legal rights or property rights to speak of.
0: Now, I just have to interrupt and and make the point to the listeners that uh, the book is, I would say, extremely even-handed in its portrait of the wets and the dries. Thank you, um, but you're coming across right now as very dry.
1: Well, uh, and you don't. What I'm suggesting, and I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, I think prohibition we will get to this. Obviously, it was a ridiculously bad idea, um, but there was a reason for it. Uh, drinking took a terrible, terrible toll on the lives of Americans, and you couldn't get a popular movement of the size of prohibition and the effectiveness of prohibition uh, if the the negative effect of drinking uh, wasn't so apparent.
0: But part of that. Passion against it, and let's turn to that. Uh, was religious in nature and not simply a reaction to the social, um, the social costs or social impact of liquor, right?
1: Well, religious in the in the sense that yes, the, the Baptist and Methodist churches particularly uh, were very much anti liquor as as they remain today. At least the Baptist church does, uh, and in the middle of the country, in the Midwest, and then in the South as well. As we get into the later stages of the 19th century, the uh, uh, Methodist and Baptist native-born white Protestant, uh, obviously Protestant, uh, of uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon ex- extraction um, was uh, not just interested in the intemperance because of the religious reason, but also there were ethnic reasons involved. And this is uh, something I knew nothing about going into the uh, the subject at all, but um, it was a Protestant movement aimed, in many cases, against Catholics, the immigrants who were coming into the cities.
0: These were uh, Irish and Italian, typically?
1: Irish and Italian and some other Eastern European countries. Uh, and I think that what happened is in the middle of the country, they saw that they were losing, or they believe they were losing their country to these invading immigrant hordes.
0: This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, um, the, uh, there are a lot of timeless themes in the book. <clears throat> unbelievable. <laughs> the, the cities were filling up with immigrants. Political machines
1: in the cities were largely born out of the saloons. You know, uh, John F. Kennedy's grandfather, the founder of the American family, uh, Patrick Kennedy, was a liquor store owner, a wholesaler, a saloon operator, and a ward leader. And the saloon was the perfect place to organize politics around. Uh, New York, Chicago, Detroit, Boston, Philadelphia—the Democratic political machines that grew up in the late part of the 19th century. Uh, came out of the saloons. They were electing people to Congress who didn't look like or sound like the uh, typical um, Native born Native born American from from Southern Ohio, say. And these people in the middle of the country saw, felt that they were losing their country, uh, and they blamed liquor on it. They also saw that. Alcoholic beverages were a very large part of the life of the immigrant groups. Uh, obviously, the Irish and the Italians, it was uh, you know, part, of, part of daily life to have beer or wine or whiskey, uh, even if in moderation. And that was uh, thus seen as something that uh, uh, kind of promoted the political evil that the um, uh, native-born Americans uh, believed that the foreigners were bringing into their land.
0: And, of course, the work life of an American in in the 19th century, late 19th century, not just in the cities but in the countryside, either in the farms or in the mines, was a pretty tough life. And at the end of that day, you could use a drink.
1: (laughs) You absolutely could. I I love to to look into Upton Sinclair's uh, The Jungle, uh, the the book we all read of Horrible life in the meatpacking plants of Chicago at the turn of the last century. And it's worth noting that Sinclair was, among American writers, I think he was the only dedicated dry. He was very much pro-prohibition from the beginning all the way through to the end. But he has his character uh, singing the hymns of the saloon, and that after this horrible life in this stinking pit of hell, uh, you could be a man again, you could drink freely, you could enjoy yourself, you could think your own thoughts. Uh, the saloon was a, was an escape. You know, in the mining and lumber camps of the West, it was the same way. Here were people who were working 16 hours a day away from home, not attached to their family. Uh, it wasn't as if there was a lot of amusement, entertainment, and comfort around them, but the saloon provided all of those things.
0: I just think what a good writer Sinclair could have been if he drank.
1: <clears throat> <laughs> just <laughs> well, he probably would have. I was going to say he probably would have written less, but then I think of Jack Jack London, who wrote more than anybody per you know year, uh, but drank even more than he wrote. So there you go.
0: Now, I was just kidding about that. There is this, I think, uh, many authors have a feeling that they write best when they're drunk, but I, I think it's a feeling mainly felt by themselves.
1: Yes, I, I, it can be very, very deceptive, obviously. But you know, if I may, I just having brought London's name up, I yeah. think that he's a really interesting story about the, the kind of coalitions that were built up around prohibition. In 1911, he's living in Sonoma County, California, and there's a uh, a statewide women's suffrage on the ballot. And he gets on his horse and rides into town, has a few drinks, votes, has a few more drinks, rides back up to the ranch and tells his wife that he voted for women's suffrage. And she was shocked. He had never shown any interest in supporting women's suffrage, and she asked why, and he said that he realized that when a woman gets the vote, she will vote to close the saloon. And if the saloons close, I will finally be able to stop drinking. He supported it for the sake of his own sobriety.
0: He wanted to tie himself to the mast. He did. Uh, Little did he know (laughs) that uh, liquor would still possibly be available in San Francisco. Um,
1: Uh, That he wasn't that aware of, but he was certainly – he was right on the question of women and the the, – Women's Suffrage Amendment and the Prohibition Amendment entered the Constitution virtually together, and the two movements were were inextricably, inextricably
0: linked from 1850 forward. That was one of the most interesting things I learned from the book. So talk about both the single-issue um, way the prohibitionists went forward but how it would occasionally weave in with the suffrage movement.
1: The the, the key uh, figure in bringing about prohibition was a now totally forgotten man named Wayne B. Wheeler, who, when he died in 1927, the Washington Post said that when the history of our time is written, the first name that will be mentioned is that of Wayne B. Wheeler. Uh, and of course nobody's ever heard of him today um, but what Wheeler you're, do, you're doing
0: your best to bring him back though
1: I, I, well he's a fabulous <laughs> he's character a, he's whether one agrees with his positions or not yeah. uh, he's one of the three or four of my three or four favorite characters in the book uh, Wheeler was brilliant and, and as a political uh, strategist and manipulator I think that uh, he created the playbook that's been used by everybody from Lee Atwater and Carl Rove to James Carville it's uh uh, he showed how you could win at the margins. What he did was he, he dedicated his organization, the Anti-Saloon League, to one issue and one issue only. And if you had an election between two men, and they were all men back then running for Congress, and it was a reasonably close election, all he cared about was were you going to support prohibition or not. If you were for better schools, better hospitals, sunshine and brightness, And against Prohibition, you would not get his support. And if you were for nothing but uh, perfidy and horror and terrible things but for Prohibition, he backed you. And he could deliver in any given constituency anywhere from 5% to 20% of the votes based on are you for or against Prohibition. So without ever having a majority, he could tilt the balance between any two candidates in a reasonably close race the same time, he realized that he could expand his influence if he brought other allies into into his tent. And there were a couple of other movements that he either uh, openly or subtly connected with, and the primary one was the women's suffrage movement. Um, It wasn't quite a public quid pro quo, we'll support you if you'll support us, but it was very clear to everyone involved that the two were related. And as a result... The brewers, who were the most powerful forces on the anti-prohibition side, they vowed in a resolution passed in 1871 by the U.S. Brewers Association to oppose women's suffrage everywhere and anywhere because they saw the vote for women would be their downfall. Of course, the more that they opposed women's suffrage, the more that that guaranteed that when women did get the vote, they would vote for prohibition and against the brewers.
0: Yeah, It's an incredible story. I just wanted to add a footnote to that that description of the brewers as the largest anti-prohibition force, of course, in some dimension, the largest anti-prohibition force were drinkers, but they weren't organized, of course. There there they was were, no mechanism for them other than, than the ballot, and, and the brewers, because they had money, could be an influence, but because they opposed women's women voting because they were afraid that women would vote for prohibition candidates, which was true, uh, typically correct – that um, they were seen as sort of evil manipulators uh, seeking profit, which of course they were.
1: Which they were, they yeah. were stri- very much so. And they did an incredible number of underhanded things. Uh, they, they, uh, particularly, they supported a huge campaign of, of bogus journalism that they they gave to country editors all over the country uh, articles that purported to be telling the true story about people making. Uh, Certain uh, accomplishments because of the beer they were drinking, uh, and it was all fabricated. It was all bribery. Country editors liked their money, as uh, one of the brewers said. Uh, one of the cleverest things they, the brewers did was in Texas. Um, this is in 1903, 1904, 1905, when there's a statewide prohibition measure on the ballot, and they uh, decided that they were going to uh, uh, take advantage of the still existing pre Jim Crow law black vote in Texas, um, and they would send their agents out throughout East Texas primarily, showing up on Election Day. And to attract the uh, support of black voters, they equipped those people, these agents, with um, three things. The money to pay the poll tax, which the most blacks in East Texas could not afford. A power of attorney that enabled them to vote, the person's vote. And third, a poster of Abraham Lincoln to indicate whose side they were on. Uh, it was diabolical and it was very, very effective.
0: East Texas is really a remarkable place, isn't it? I, yeah. I just I, – I think about um, uh, Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, which I think a lot of the excitement takes place in East Texas in yep. this yep. Senate campaign and a little bit lawless there, I think, with respect to electoral politics. Right, nasty, right. nasty place. Uh, talk about the role that the – again, tying together some apparently but actually not so disparate elements – Talk about the role that the establishment of the income tax played in the Prohibition story.
1: I think, I think this was the biggest surprise to me. Uh, I had no idea, and even in reading some earlier histories of Prohibition, uh, it's not really addressed directly. But um, until the, the creation of the passage of the Income Tax Amendment, the 16th Amendment in 1913, the federal government in a given year got as much as 40% of its revenue from the excise tax on alcohol. Uh, you couldn't have a functioning federal government, even the small federal government of those uh, of that era, uh, unless you had a substitute for that revenue. In 1895, the Supreme Court had declared an income tax uh, unconstitutional, so it had to come about by constitutional amendment. And here's where the prohibitionists hooked up with the populists. William Jennings Bryan was the figure who represented both. In, his, in, his, in Bryan, uh, both these movements came together. He was their embodiment. Um, and in 1913, when the income tax is finally uh, ratified, the income tax amendment. Only then does Wayne Wheeler and the uh, do Wayne Wheeler and the Anti-Saloon League declare that they are going for a constitutional amendment, because only then was there a substitute for the revenue that would be lost if we took away liquor.
0: And you you cite my uh, colleague Don Boudreau, who's been a guest on this program many times. His work with Adam Pritchard that when, uh, in the early 1930s, when the income tax revenue was falling dramatically, it made the repeal of prohibition that much more attractive.
1: Yeah, and we'll get to that in the conversation, I'm sure, but this notion that that, uh, prohibition is ushered in uh, because of a change in the tax laws, and then it is ushered out because the needed change in the tax laws uh, sort of confirms my view of the world as being determined always by economic matters.
0: Well, it has a lot to do with it. Even as an economist, I'm not always that um, eager to push it that far. But it certainly had made it. It greased the skids on both it's directions, really yeah, no doubt yeah, about it. Yeah. So let's talk about the that run up to the actual passage. Uh, as you point out, the the dries in as a, nationally were not a majority. They were yeah, nearly. They were a in the cities. They were a big minority. Uh, as well, when we get, to, I want to talk about reapportionment later, which which that relates to. How did this actually happen? You, ha- you had in the Midwest, as you very colorfully portray, a, a wild array of characters who who passionately talked about the the evils of, of liquor. And just as the brewers did a lot of bad journalism uh, against mm-hmm. prohibition, the, the anti alcohol people spread some horrible lies about alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it? How did it happen? How did it coalesce to to actually change the Constitution? Well,
1: first, there was a a condition that we have to stipulate, um, which is that the uh, uh, apportionment of state legislatures in those years, in those decades before Baker v. Carr, uh, was wildly out of skew with the population. So that, for instance, in New York State, a member of the New York State Assembly who came from a farm town upstate, uh, represented one-seventh the number of people that are representative from the Lower East Side of New York represented. So that you had these uh, uh, Rottenborough uh, districting that enabled the rural districts, which is to say the Protestant districts, which is to say the pro Prohibition districts, to dominate state legislatures across the country. So when the ratification process after Congress gives the two-thirds majority in each house uh, to the uh, 18th amendment when the ratification process begins uh, the talk about uh, greasing the skids um, the rotten borough legislatures make it possible but the thing that actually puts it over because in some states it was very very close was world war one
0: they had to right. get just to clarify congress had uh, both houses right right each
1: each house separately had but to congress approve two thirds and <clears throat> that came about because of the 1916 election in the 1916 election was the one that uh, Wayne Wheeler and the ASL pointed everything toward. The ASL is the
0: Anti-Saloon League, right?
1: Right, and they they elected a dry Congress. Um, And to the degree that there were members of Congress that they had not elected, they were able to threaten those uh, with the possibility of future defeat because of the power they had demonstrated in electing so many in 1916. So it passes Congress, passes the House, passes the Senate, gets the two-third majority in each House, and now it has to get three-quarters of the
0: state's. Within each, within each state, each part. Each state par- legislature. Right, has to vote three-quarters. It seems impossible. It seems impossible. No, no. each state legislature only has to vote by majority. But three-quarters, I'm sorry. need.
1: This is our 48 states at the time, so you need to pass 36 state legislatures. You need to not only pass you know Colorado and Mississippi, but you're going to need some in the, in the Northeast and the, the Upper Midwest as well. And it would look hard, except for two things. first the malapportionment of state legislatures, particularly in states that had large urban populations that were terribly underrepresented. I mean, Maryland had not reapportioned its state legislature since 1867. There had been a half a century of immigration and of uh, Baltimore uh, growing in population that was not reflected in the makeup of that, of that legislature. And the second factor, as I said, was World War I.
0: Yeah, talk about the, that.
1: The mm-hmm. brewers and World War I were not a happy combination. What were the last names of the brewers? Anheuser, Bush, Schlitz, Pabst, Schmidt, Coors, all of them were German. And it was very easy for Wheeler and the Anti-Saloon League to demonize the brewers, that they were destroying our country and our country's war effort. They were sapping the strength of the American fighting man by feeding him this vile, poisonous uh, alcohol. Uh, they were sapping the spirit of the the people... Back home, who were in the drunken stupor because of their the, the vile alcohol provided by the the breweries, uh, they were the breweries were consuming the grain products that were needed to bake bed for, bake bread for the starging, starving Belgians. Let me try that again: <laughs> bake bread for the starving Belgians. Uh, so they demonized them; that they were the tools of the Kaiser who were working unpatriotically, uh, diabolically uh, as a fifth column inside the United States to destroy the war effort and that put it over that made it so easy the, the brewers had spent the previous four decades spending their money uh working underhandedly doing whatever they could to discredit the prohibition movement and now they were totally discredited by World War 1 and the uh, uh the three quarters of the states approved it in you know in the space of like 15 months it took almost no time at all finally 46 states uh ratified the the amendment. The only two that didn't were Rhode Island and Connecticut, the two most Catholic states in the
0: country. And why did they not? What were the politics there?
1: Well, the politics were that the the representation at least in one house of the legislature in each of those states uh, was was honest, fair, and heavily Catholic. And Catholics uh, almost uh, universally opposed prohibition for both uh, 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 political reasons and for uh, ethnic reasons. And the um, in Connecticut, it passed one house of the legislature, the one that was not appropriated by population, but failed in the other. In Rhode Island, it never passed either one. New Jersey, also with a heavy Catholic population, didn't ratify until two years after the amendment was already in effect.
0: So the the brewers were overwhelmingly German. Um... Being Jewish, I read the Jewish parts of your book with mixed pride. Uh, the Jews were were, do, were very dominant in the distilling business um, in this era, and there was a there's a fascinating. You didn't spend a lot of time on this, but as an economist, I found it fascinating to think about the interplay between the distillery industry and the and the brewers. So, on one hand, you have the beer manufacturers who are mainly selling their product through saloons which are seen as the sort of dens of iniquity. And then you have the distillers who are typically selling some in the saloons, but they're, it's expensive. So they're also selling to a higher-brow crowd who are often buying in hotels and at home. And so their interests it, for a long time were very disparate, and they're uh, split politically in their, in their goals when it wasn't clear that prohibition might be the outcome. We'll talk right. about say,
1: that. You know, they, they, they were rivals. They were economic rivals. Um, every glass of beer you bought was a shot of whiskey you didn't buy and vice versa. Uh, they did not see their interests as being in common. Um, the, every every new saloon um, sponsored by Pabst or Schlitz or Anheuser-Busch that opened on a corner was bad for the distilling industry. And similarly, every uh city that that put a high price on a license for saloons was bad for the brewing industry because it, as you said it was a product that was going in a different direction uh so they didn't work together in fact they worked very decisively against one another uh the brewers took the position that the distillers were were distributing this rotten poisonous powerful stuff while they the brewers were offering what they even called had the temerity to call liquid bread
0: I love that a uh, wonderful
1: love that. phrase you know, there's a photograph in the book. I don't know whether you noticed of a uh, uh, an advertising brochure from George Geese, a, a, uh, a brewer of German extraction in Detroit, uh, which shows a, a three or four year old child drinking beer because it's it's a healthful beverage. They Maybe were bad. selling it as that. The um, distillers, on the other hand, were able to paint the brewers as the vile uh, managers of these saloons of these terrible. Uh, places that were corrupting and despoiling the cities. And, you know, wouldn't it be better if we had only hotels to drink in and, and package stores to buy our, our stuff from? So they, they hated each other. They never came together. And to the degree that it would have been possible for there to be an organized opposition to prohibition, uh, there wasn't because of that. was, there was it... also the matter, as you said, you know, the constituency, the people who drank, um the the uh, humorous George aid he says you know they they were too busy drinking uh, while the, the the and the pro prohibition people were were organizing, but beyond that, um, I think you never get people to fight as hard to keep something than to, they do when they want to change something it's, politically it 's easier to play offense than defense yep. it 's easier to motivate your people let 's get rid of the evil liquor as the, the the mob storms down the street to the ballot box." Uh, it's harder to get that out. Let's keep what we already have. Doesn't work that way.
0: And there was an ideological opposition, right? There were people who said the government has no business in, in what I put in my uh, in my my glass. But that was um, we're, we're sort of at a transition point where the progressive movement is, uh, in the, and it's really the beginning of the nanny state, ironically led by. Uh, I don't know whether you call it the left or the right. It's hard to call it, but it was. Well, that's
1: a... the thing. It doesn't. The, the, the categories that we have today just don't fit. In fact, you know, the people who opposed the nanny state, if we want to use that term, uh, or the people who uh, opposed prohibition and the interference in the lives of individuals, most vociferously, um, were the eastern plutocrats, yep. uh, the wealthy, extremely conservative Republicans who had dominated Congress through, from the 1890s until, until 1915 and 1920 or so, because, you know, get out of my life, you have no business doing this. These are the same people who opposed the income tax amendment, they opposed the women's suffrage amendment, they opposed child labor laws, they opposed prohibition. They saw all of those things as a package. The other great constituency that didn't believe the government should get involved in this, um, great in the sense of power, was the, the white racists in political power in the South. Because to acknowledge that the government had the power to do this was to acknowledge that the 15th Amendment had validity, and they wanted to continue to hold on to this argument of states' rights, which they continued to grasp for decades, even a century. Uh, and you can't hold on to the argument for state rights if you're going to have a federal proscription on liquor. And the, the political alliance for prohibition stretched from the Ku Klux Klan at one end because of the anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic aspect of it, Through the Progressive Party, where 17 of the 18 members of the Progressive Party who voted on the Constitutional Amendment in the House of Representatives voted for Prohibition, to the the far left, the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies, they supported Prohibition because they believed that liquor was a tool used by the capitalists
0: to keep the working man down. One of the parts I really enjoyed in a depressing way about the book was it... um it brought in to highlight some of the um, class paternalism that we see elsewhere. We have an essay on our website uh, by uh, David Levy and Sandra Peart on the history of the anti-slavery movement. And economists were very much in the forefront of that because they believed that Africans were like everyone else. They could lead their own lives. They knew what was best for them. It's an idea that goes back to Adam Smith and before – And the pro-slavery crowd, although it included some very malevolent and evil people, it included some much more subtly, in my mind, malevolent people, writers like Dickens, Tennyson, and others who felt that African black-skinned people couldn't make their own decisions and slavery was was a way to keep their lives in check. And we see some of those same forces playing out in this um, debate over drinking, in particular, that the upper classes saw themselves capable of holding their liquor, but the working man, of course, had to be protected.
1: Uh, protected or kept down, depending on the perspective. Yeah, and The, right. the, the, for the, the, the conservative uh, upper classes saw it kept down. The, the one and by today's terminology, the more liberal, say the settlement house movement, people like Jane Addams, it was for their own good. It was extremely paternalistic. Uh, you know, I understand why they want their liquor, but really they shouldn't have it because it's bad for them and their families and their futures. We can keep our own. Uh, that seemed to run through um, uh, both strands.
0: Well, there's a remarkable one of my favorite moments in the book is a, a page on on the Rains Law, which is a pre-prohibition New York regulation with an unintended consequence. Do you remember it?
1: Oh, absolutely. I love the Rains Law. The uh, uh, wealthy people in the 1890s, uh, uh and the period after that, they, they did their drinking, their, their social drinking in hotel restaurants, largely. Uh, in an effort to, uh, stop the, the proliferation of saloons, at least to keep them, uh, from, uh, despoiling the Sabbath, the New York legislature passed a law in the 1890s called the Rains Law after its author that said that on Sundays you couldn't serve liquor except in a place that a served food and b was a hotel that it had beds as well. So it enabled the wealthy could still go out to the Waldorf for the Astoria and they could have their fine dinner and they could have their wine and their their whiskey and their brandy with it. Um, but the saloons would have to be closed. Well, the way this was dealt with uh, with some ingenuity uh, was two ways. First, um, they have to serve food. Well. What constitutes serving food? It wasn't well defined. It could have been a saltine. The joke version, what was called a Rains sandwich after the law, was two slices of bread with a brick in between. And that would be sit on the counter and you could buy it for a penny and then have your drink. Uh, the more uh, uh, um, nefarious consequence of the Rains law is that saloons that wanted to stay open on Sunday put in a few beds. And what were those beds used for? Prostitution, inevitably. And so the saloon became not just a place where drinking was going on, but where illegal sexual activity was taking place as
0: well. And what, I, what it was fantastic is that uh, before the law was passed in Brooklyn, there were, I think, 10 hotels. Is that right? It's something that yeah, advanced, 10. Yeah. And then after the law was passed, suddenly there were 2,000. It became a tourist mecca.
1: Isn't it, it it's, it's something? People yeah. just wanted to come to Brooklyn. Well, you know, it was two beds upstairs, or maybe one bed upstairs and a and a brick sandwich <laughs> on on the bar. You know, the, the, it's worth a little detour, I, I, I think, to talk about food and bars. You know, we say that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, the free lunch was an absolute staple of the urban saloon from 1890 or so until Prohibition. Uh, the saloons were almost all by then dominated by what's called the, the, the Tide House business, that it was a Pabst saloon or it was a Rupert saloon or a Schmitz saloon. And in exchange for the saloon owner only selling one brand of beer, that brewery, that brand of beer, would provide everything that he needed to stay in business, everything from the cutlery to the glassware uh, to the signage to the picture of John L. Sullivan on the wall, the mirror behind the bar. Uh, and so on. And among the various other things provided were the free lunch. And you could walk into any urban saloon in 1897, 1898, and for pay, if you pay a nickel for your beer, you get with it a lunch that consisted of, oh, saltines, sardines, clams, sausage. In other words, the saltiest food <laughs> imaginable. Uh, somebody said the sardines were not just fish. They were silent partners.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Of course, I... I think I may have told the story once before on the air, but when I first moved uh, to St. Louis uh, in the early 1990s, I, my wife and I went out to a bar and I asked the waitress what beer they had available. And then she said, we have everything. And I said, um, well, for example, she said, well, we have Bud, Bud Light, Micklobe. <laughs> Bush, Bush Light, you know, they had the entire array of Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch products. So St. Louis then was, and probably still is, somewhat of a tied town. And I'm, sure, I'm yeah. sure Milwaukee so, is.
1: Somebody wants to use the phrase that St. Louis was a small encampment uh, on the banks of the Mississippi River uh, just outside the city of Anheuser-Busch.
0: Yeah, uh, it's less true now than it was then, yeah. but it, but it's yeah. uh, it's still an important part of the city and its a baseball team, uh, even though it's changed hands. Um, let's turn to the Volmstead Act. Let's so so the prohibition, the Eighteenth Amendment passes. Uh, it's passed through the Congress and Senate, and all the thirty and ultimately forty-six of the forty-eight state legislatures pass it. But we've got to provide actual legislation for enforcing the law, and that's the Volmstead Act. So, how did that play out, and what were the consequences?
1: Well, the Volstead Act. So named after the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Andrew Volstead of Minnesota, who wasn't a particularly ardent prohibitionist. He was a kind of a classic Midwestern uh, social progressive. uh, Actually, Um, the Volstead Act put the teeth in the Prohibition Amendment. The amendment is, you know, really just four four sentences, three clauses long. Uh, The Volstead Act goes on for pages and pages, setting out the rules, the penalties, the uh, the ways that uh, some legal forms of alcohol can be provided. Uh, and so on and so forth. And um, it was not written by Wayne B. Wheeler, but he had enormous influence over it. And there were some interesting aspects to it that had uh, a lot to do with uh, the politics of the day and also with what his perception was of how the, the law would be enforced. For one thing, it was never against the law to drink. Uh, it was not even against the law to drink in public. Um, and what Wheeler had reasoned was if... We make it illegal to drink. We will never be able to get anybody to testify against his supplier, whether that supplier is a bootlegger or a bartender in a speakeasy. Um, but the more interesting, the most interesting aspects of the Volstead Act to me were the three exceptions, the three statutory exceptions that it's enabled in, yeah. individuals <laughs> to get alcoholic beverages legally, uh, if, legally to sell them legally too, uh, to sell them, to, to manufacture, sell, and transport, uh, which were the three things that were forbidden. Otherwise, uh, <clears throat> by the Eighteenth Amendment, uh, the first of these, uh, Wheeler said, was to enable the farmer to preserve his fruit juices. Um, that was a nice euphemism for to enable the farmer to continue to make and drink hard cider. When Johnny Appleseed was traveling through the Ohio Valley in the beginning of the the end of the Eighteenth and the beginning of the nineteenth century, those weren't Macintosh apples he was spreading around. Those were cider apples strictly. And uh, as Daniel Webster wrote in his memoir. Uh, you could not go into a house in New Hampshire in the 1840s and the 1830s and 1820s, uh, where there wasn't a barrel of cider by the door and a ladle for everybody to use to take a glass of it. And knowing that he needed the support of the farm districts to uh, get the, pro- the prohibition amendment through, uh, Wheeler very specifically made it clear that he was going to keep fruit juices the, the preservation of fruit juice is legal,
0: which but is awkward to, because grapes are fruit in a certain in the right, produce and that section. Led to an
1: enormous business, so, you know, in, in, in California in the wine growing districts of California in 1918, 1919, they saw prohibition was coming, and a lot of the vineyardists tore out their grapes and replaced them with apricots and plums and various other product, crops. Uh but then in nineteen twenty, the first prohibition harvest, suddenly the price of grapes has gone up eightfold.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing uh,
1: part of the, the book. Market. And by nineteen twenty three it's up something like eighty fold because suddenly the, the 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 grape growers realize they can just ship huge quantities of grapes east to the big cities where there are large immigrant populations, where people know how to make wine, and where under the regulations that that came out of the Volstead Act, it was legal for a family to make up to 200 gallons a year for their own use. Now, that's quite a large family or quite a lot of drinking.
0: Yes, they are thirsty?
1: The vineyardists who who were suicidal at the beginning of Prohibition, suddenly they found themselves rolling in money. They could pay for... Uh, that they, they could bring in uh, as much money as they had before without even having to make the wine. They just put the grapes in freight cars. As many as seventy thousand freight cars a year going east. The Pennsylvania Railroad uh, doubled the size of the New Jersey freight yards strictly to handle the grape business coming into the New York market.
0: I found this part of the book a little hard to believe. I mean, you do have to you do have to have a lot of faith in how thirsty people are. So. so. The other part of the story, of course, is that the grapes that they're shipping are lousy grapes because they have to be able to withstand this cross-country journey, right?
1: Right, yeah. The, 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 the in, in places like Napa, where the quality wines presumably were come from, people tore out their... The, the grape growers tore out their Cabernet grapes, their Zinfandel grapes, their Chardonnay grapes, and planted this grape called Alicante Boucher. Alicante Boucher had two great qualities. It shipped extremely well. It could get make it from... California to New York and still be a round, firm grape.
0: It was a thick skin.
1: Very thick skin. And secondarily, partly because of the thick skin, but also it's very red pulp, it produced a lot of color. And you could get something that looked like wine, even if it didn't taste much like wine, from second, third, fourth, fifth pressings of the grape. So it became very, very popular. Uh, but it was not because people were not drinking it because they appreciated its its body and its long tannins and its wonderful uh, <laughs> nose, uh, it's Legs. Th- yeah. they, they were after it because you could get drunk from it. And um, it became a great, great business. Now, the problem was, of course, at the end of Prohibition, uh, people had torn out their good grapes and there were very, very few people left who knew how to make decent wine. And that leads to the second exception, which was sacramental wine. And uh, the leader in this business was uh, Georges Delatour, the founder of Beaulieu Vineyard, still a famous vineyard today. He had what was called an ecclesiastical approbation from the Archbishop of Northern California to sell communion wines to priests across the country. Uh, Wheeler had put into the Volstead Act, he had made certain of the Volstead Act allowed the use of sacramental wine because the Catholics and the Jews were the two groups that had opposed Prohibition most vociferously, and he had used this as an attempt to win their support. It didn't win their support, but it did create a, an enormous business. So Delator, by 1921, was sending out brochures across the country advertising his communion wine, which he, by then, only one year into Prohibition, came in ten different grape varietals. You could get Cabernet, you could get Chablis, you could get Tokay, Moselle, Riesling, so on and so I think forth.
0: There was brand- wasn't there brandy also? But there uh, a- that
1: comes later. Okay. That comes later. There was an important court decision in 1929 where the federal judge says it's not the liquid itself that makes it for sacramental purposes. It's the use that makes it for sacramental purposes, which was the court decision that allowed sacramental brandy and creme de menthe.
0: And then the Jews also took advantage of this. Yeah.
1: Uh, uh, Now, because the Jews did not have nearly the... uh, They they had no hierarchical structure the way that the Catholic Church did. It wasn't a matter of getting an approval from an archbishop. It was any rabbi could get a license to distribute wine to the adult members of his congregation, 10 gallons per member of the congregation per year.
0: And this would be for the making of uh, Kiddush, the... This was for
1: Sabbath wine and for the the holidays. Uh, A sip or uh, two? Perfectly legitimate... (laughs) business, right?
0: And Jews are not known and still are not we're not known and still are not known as heavy drinkers, although they do drink wine on Friday night and Saturday uh yeah,
1: I would love to I mean being Jewish myself and not that I'm a representative, I wonder how whether whether the mythology about Jews not drinking much is really mythology. It's but good point. that's an that's a topic for another
0: conversation. Could be. Um, but they certainly accepted a lot, and a lot of congregations sprung up, yeah, and a lot and, of rabbis. And, and, and there was
1: real opposition uh, among Jews to Prohibition, as, as it, was, it was seen as a, you know, this kind of Protestant craziness uh, during the 1910s as it was coming forward. But what happened, you know, any rabbi could welcome as many people to his congregation as he wished. And uh, you know, take one, Talmud Torah in the Boyle Heights section of Los Angeles had 180 families in 1920, and a year later it had 1,000 families. And they had a rabbi, Benjamin Gardner, who was into business by, uh, within another year of distributing wine to several other congregations. It's and congregations key. sometimes were filled with people, such as one in Alameda, Alameda, California, who were mostly dead, names taken from the telephone directories. They yep. were just, uh, you know, anything that a, a deceitful person, rabbi or otherwise, who were claiming to be a rabbi, uh, could do to get his, his hands on as much wine as possible. I have a photograph of, in the book of a store on the Lower East Side of Manhattan selling kosher wines for sacramental purposes only. The windows packed high with huge jugs of the stuff. This finally came to, uh, if not an end, it was finally put under control when it became too much of an embarrassment. As we said in in in, in my household, this was bad for the Jews. The shanda, the in front of the goyim. The the. the Number of, uh, uh, of rabbis who were being arrested for their their dishonest uh, wine businesses. Uh, you know, it was terrible to open the newspaper and see another rabbi arrested. Um, but it became to a head when the rabbis had names such as McLaughlin and O'Hara and Kelly, because who was to say who was or who wasn't right. a rabbi? And finally, there was some crackdown, uh, clamping down on it around 1926. Uh, was reduced to five gallons per year, and it was much more regulated at that point
0: on. The irony of this is that th- these these exceptions. So you, you, have, you have home home alcohol brewing. So you, you could make a substantial amount of of your own wine, ostensibly for the rural population. But as you point out, it ended up being extremely attractive to urban populations who were selling it. Of course, they weren't just drinking it for themselves; they were doing both. Uh, you have the Catholics, you have the Jews, and yet at the same time, this is the, the extraordinary part of the story: virtually no money is set aside for enforcement. So there's these are the legal exceptions. The de facto illegal exemptions are enormous. Enormous. The so, de facto
1: is the word for it. You know, the the, the appropriation was, uh, you know, in in well, there were at the beginning there were two thousand federal prohibition agents to cover the entire country, which is a ridiculous number. I mean, it, it just it was a joke, and what what you have to remember, we're in the 1920s, and the same, uh, 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 midwestern-dominated Republican Congresses and, pre- and, and the presidency, in the case of Harding, um, these are the same people who are also appropriating uh, all the government's expenditures, and this was a time of cheese parers. This was a time when no one wanted the government, to, the federal government, to spend money. So the idea of voting to uh, uh, dollars to, to uh, enforce prohibition was anathema to penny-pinching Republican congressmen. Uh, so what you had was a law but no enforcement of the law to
0: speak of uh, in much of the country. So I want to let me bring an idea forward that listeners will be familiar with, which is uh, uh, we, we talk a lot on this program about a, uh, an idea put forward by Bruce Yandel at Clemson. It's called the bootlegger and Baptist theory of government regulation, and of course it applies – extraordinarily aptly to today's conversation. So the bootlegger and Baptist idea is that there are two, uh, usually two interest groups that that are in favor of legislation. In fact, if you look at almost every legislation, there's these two groups who are almost always there. One of the high-minded folks who have the moral authority to that a politician stands behind, and those are the Baptists who say liquor is evil and we're I'm against this because it's ruining our children or our families. Then you have the bootleggers, the people who profit from the illegality and when Bruce talks about it, he's usually talking about Sunday liquor sales. So the Baptists are against it because it's the work of the devil, and the bootleggers uh, are, are against legal sales because they want to sell liquor, liquor illegally under the table. The part that's interesting, once prohibition gets passed, enormous amounts of money are made by bootleggers, as you, we've already talked about a little bit, and you detail in quite, a, quite a well in the book. So it's clear that they have a stake in keeping uh, prohibition in place. So the Baptists like it, the so-called Baptists, the religious folks who are against the uh, evils of liquor, the the altruists, the so-called altruists, people who are worried about the, the poor folks going under the, s- the spell of, uh, of alcohol. And the bootleggers like it because they, they're making enormous sums of money. And we'd tax-free. In- tax-free. And we'd include all these folks we've been talking about, not just the literal bootleggers, but the grape growers who suddenly find this unexpected, unintended bonanza... Uh, for their, a very cheap crop, um, did any of that come into play in advance of the law? Did any of these groups lobby for prohibition, seeing it as an entrepreneurial opportunity?
1: Not that I found, uh, which is not to say that they didn't. But God, no, you can't check everything. Uh, what More, I found that the, the groups who were supporting prohibition out of their pecuniary self-interest were organizations like the Soft Drink Bottlers, uh, Asa Candler of of Coca-Cola, was a huge backer of Prohibition, uh, very wisely. It did wonders for his product uh, once it came in. Uh, Another example would be the Schubert Brothers, the the, the theatrical Schubert Brothers, who controlled so many uh, legitimate theaters around the country. And they were delighted in their own lives to have liquor, and they probably didn't mind it in other people's lives, but they... Reason that if the bars were closed, people would go to theaters instead. So it wasn't their was that true? interest.
0: I wonder if they did.
1: Uh, don't know. I don't know yeah. whether they, I don't know how I, w- I couldn't figure out a way to prove that. I mean, one of the other—it was very hard even to make the connection between the the, um, the bootleggers and their political support for prohibition during prohibition. Although, I mean, you're not going to find a check made out to a political campaign and signed Alphonse Capone, but you do have many instances of wet administrative uh, wet wet politicians in executive positions like Mayor Bill Thompson of Chicago who was as as he liked to say wet as the Atlantic Ocean supporting dry legislators because there was nothing better for the bootleggers who supported Thompson who was corrupt as can be. There was nothing better than to have harsh laws that weren't enforced.
0: And it's why the police liked it too.
1: It it was a wonder for the police and for law enforcement across the country. There's never been uh, a better source of corruption than the the hundreds of millions of dollars that were, we're passing illegally uh, during Prohibition.
0: Did they cut any salaries during this time? And it would be wise during this time to cut police salaries because they had this alternative source of income. I well, wonder. there
1: was certainly no pressure to raise them.
0: Yeah, well, the that's way. true. Yeah.
1: You know, there were, the, the big scandal where a lot of this came out was in Philadelphia. Um, where there were a number there was a you know these one police captain who, on a salary of something like eighteen hundred dollars a year had a, uh, had a bank account of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and he said that uh, he had been able to acquire that by by raising pet birds
0: and selling them. Oh, he was a <clears throat> ingenious entrepreneur, no doubt
1: one of uh, the other political yeah. things that I found fascinating was was uh, along these lines I did a very close analysis of a vote in Massachusetts to repeal the state's prohibition enforcement law and the it was voted to be repealed overwhelmingly in the state the only people who wanted to keep it in place were in the coastal counties where <laughs> nearly everyone who was involved in the fishing industry suddenly found themselves involved in the rum running industry as well you would t- you, if you did a comparison of towns on Cape Cod, where I live half a year, and Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, the north shore of Boston, particularly in those towns that were strictly uh, or virtually all uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and compared their voting on this law to the people who lived inland, the inland people wanted to get rid of the enforcement law because they wanted to get it, make it easier to get their hands yeah. on the liquor, and the people on the coast wanted to keep it in place so they could continue to make money off of it.
0: Yeah. One of the economic aspects of this—not um, economic in the sense of financial, but in the sense of choices, trade-offs, and and consequences—is the is what a textbook would predict uh, would come about when legal branded products are no longer available, and you're on a the black market situation. So, one of the things I found fascinating was the quality degradation and the unraveling of specialization. So, you have people making those 200 gallons in their own homes, right? You've got this incredible um, localization of of output and product for some of the market. And all of the economies of scale of distribution are are highly limited because they've got to be done surreptitiously. And um, there's quite a bit of quality degradation. But there's also – some people are dying because there's poison put into the liquor, for example. But there is some quality, I assume, that still was maintained in the market.
1: Well, that's where we get call brands today. Uh, you know, when, if you think back to watching Gunsmoke, you know, they never the Marshal Dillon never walks into the bar and says, "You know, give me a wild turkey." You know, he asks for a whiskey. Um, the saloon didn't know brands; uh, it had a tap or it had large bottles in it and barrels, and it dispensed of its uh, contents. Um, once you don't know the quality of the Liquor you're, you're being offered you don't know its provenance its whereabouts what what its history suddenly there's comfort in saying instead of give me a scotch there's comfort in saying give me a doers and the call brands that we know today established themselves in, during prohibition because of this
0: hmm. but it's harder to to keep that quality because you know if somebody takes a doers bottle and fills it with rot gut. Uh, oh,
1: absolutely, and there was and there was a huge business in counterfeiting doers' labor right, you as can't well.
0: you yeah. can't sue, you can't use the legal system. You've got to use violence, essentially, of which there was plenty. Yeah, and the uh,
1: uh, the creation of the first national criminal syndicate, um, a direct product of prohibition. You know, before prohibition, obviously there were lots of criminals, and there were gangs operating in various parts of virtually every city. There would be a part of town where there was prostitution, gambling, maybe it's drug business. Um, but it was localized, and uh, a, a, a good uh, venal mobster can make a lot of money locally. But once Prohibition comes, there's suddenly the need to move large quantities of physical goods from one place to another, and you need Confederates to move. If you're bringing in the liquor through Boston uh, by having it come in in boats down to Cape Cod, how are you going to get the liquor from Boston to Albany? How are you going to get it to Hartford? Uh, you need to have somebody at the other end of it. So the uh, mob... Uh, various mobs got together in 1929 at the Hotel Presidents in Atlantic City and made a huge uh, kind of a, a corporate pact. Um, we're going to set territories, fix prices, uh, rules of the road, um, and build this national crime syndicate, uh, which uh, we then had to live with for several decades afterward.
0: Yeah, I wonder how well they were, how successful those kind of agreements were. and Obviously, they were enforced to the extent – Nobody wanted to enforce it with violence. It just takes away profit. But I wonder how well they were able to say control prices in a in that it was pretty much an open market. Lots of competition.
1: Well, there was a lot of competition, and obviously, there you know you would end up having uh, wars in the lo- in the locality. Uh, you know, Capone was part of this syndicate. Um, the North Side mob in Chicago was not, so there would be a war between the South Side and the North Side. Um, but so far as uh, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky in New York were concerned that was abn- no matter to them um, so long as Capone was still operating.
0: Now, I want to turn to repeal, but before we do, I just want to ask you one thing about the the politics, um, which fascinates me. And, and I see it as part of the bootlegger and Baptist theory as well, which is uh, – when Bruce talks about the bootlegger and Baptist theory, you, you can conclude if you're not careful that it's only saying that politics makes strange bedfellows. But for me, what I always notice when I see these – the legislation that emerges from these inevitable coalitions is uh, the proofs and the – the devil's in the details. So usually – I mean we've talked about some of those details, how peculiarly the law ended up being enforced, how little money was, was actually done for enforcement. The exemptions allowed certain groups, uh, urban immigrants making their own wine, Catholics, Jews at least to – didn't even
1: get the medicinal liquor.
0: Yeah, we, right. Well, the, right, the drugstore phenomenon – all these these interesting aspects do come out of the law that were not on the table when people were thinking about uh when they were attending a speech from William Jennings Bryan or Carrie Nation or Billy Sunday and they were thinking, you know, liquor is evil and just if we can just get this amendment uh it, it'll be over. And so what I'm always struck by is this incredible disconnect between the fantasy of a cause like this in the reality. And in this case, the disconnect the the slippage between the cup and the lip, to use a appropriate example, is so enormous. And and you wonder all these people who marched and and had so much passion for the cause, the 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 army that Wayne Wheeler really marshaled, when it actually happened, did they just kind of say, well we took care of that when in force they hadn't at all or did they say, well, life's tough, it's hard to, to get things done, and we're doing the best we can, and we'll just improve it over time? What do you think was going on there? And how much did that play into the, the repeal? Yeah,
1: there, there, was, there was a saying of the time that prohibition was perfect because the dries had their law and the wets had their liquor.
0: Um, yeah, that does sum it up.
1: And, and what, what I think happened, yes, there were many people who were very, very upset by the failure of enforcement, the unwillingness of the government to enforce um, but those who were the, at the political head of the movement, what they feared more than anything else was a modification of the law. Uh, the, sim, the symbolic nature of the law was absolutely critical to them, and they would tolerate uh, all sorts of uh, um, slippage, uh, particularly in the failure to, to appropriate enough money for enforcement um, because they wanted to keep that law in place. That was, that was paramount. So And, and, and so that, you, know, you could say that the symbol... Was more important than the reality? And that gets back to what we were discussing earlier about whether this was really about liquor or was it about control of the country and kind of a, uh, a native-born versus immigrant war?
0: And also just this idea that I think people have—we've talked about it with uh, Daniel Klein here before—that you know people have a certain romance about collective action, and they you know it makes them feel good. They're not so worried about you know, they had the law as you yeah, said once
1: they had it in place, then they become the ones who are playing defense and defense motivate people as much as offense does, uh, and that, that very clearly happened in this case. The other thing that I think happens, and I think we're experiencing this right now with the, we're about to experience it with the legislation that will soon be enacted to, uh, f- uh, to control the financial industry, um, you know what's going on inside the headquarters and the law firms representing the financial industry. They're looking at the law as it appears to be, will be and figuring out how do we legally get around this? Uh, ingenuity uh, is inspired by the possibility of profit.
0: They also carve out explicit exemptions just like they did with the – Oh, sure. I mean there,
1: there are the things in the law, but, it, yeah. but even – once the law is passed, it's not, okay, now let's live by the law. It's let's live by the law, but are there ways we can get around it without getting arrested?
0: Right. Now well, that's the human impulse. Uh, so it's, it's – we're in the 20s. Um, prohibition is – The Volmstead Act has been passed to make prohibition real on the ground, and it's a pretty ugly scene. There's not a great deal of enforcement, but there is some. People are going to jail occasionally, uh, and as you point out, sometimes tragically for very small offenses while large offenders are going free because they're bribing the right folks. Um, We do have a legal ban on the sale and manufacture and transport of intoxicating beverages, and it seems unimaginable, even as late as, what, 1930, that this could ever be changed. It just seems like how could you ever get rid of this constitutional amendment given the math that's going to have to be reversed? So what, what changes?
1: Well, the thing that changes is the economy. Uh, the market crashes in 1929 which begins to wipe out capital gains taxes for the next four or five years. In fact, they're accruing uh, losses against uh, prior gains and future gains. And then the depression sets in and people are losing jobs and incomes are going down and the income tax co- collection is plummeting. And uh, there's barely enough money to fund the government, much less to fund the things that people believe were necessary to be done to pull the country out of its economics uh Valley. Well, where can there be some tax revenue? Aha! Remember excise tax on liquor? It had served us so many times before, served us well before, so there became a movement to bring it back because the government needed its revenue. Now, behind that movement were some people who were hoping that it would replace the income tax entirely, primarily the DuPonts of Delaware, uh, who financed much of the repeal movement. But the uh, it was something that was widely recognized uh, and uh, spoken of on, on the floor of Congress when they began to debate it. We need some revenue to run the government. The other thing that the Depression did um, and the unemployment that came, people are looking around for ways, how can we create jobs? Well, you know, the combined distilling and brewing industry before Prohibition was the fifth largest industry in America in capital-invested and the numbers of people employed it was probably close to that it was in the it was in the six figures if you add up not just the brewery and the distillery workers and the people in the bars but the people delivering the ice and making the ice and the bottles and the coopers who make the barrels and the cork makers and so on and so forth an enormous industry totally put out of business sort of in 1920 sort of all all, all but put out of business well, in 1920
0: put out of business a lot of it moved to Canada a lot so of it moved...
1: moved to Canada, and some of it moved into making soft drinks and ice cream. But, yeah. the, but the huge numbers were gone.
0: Yeah,
1: you bring that back, and suddenly you know it's a real economic shot in the arm with the jobs that are created by it. So the, the the there were many reasons why people were very upset with prohibition, and there were people who were trying to get rid of prohibition. You know, the criminality, the lack of respect for law, uh, the amount of money that was going to criminals, um, the the danger in drinking bad liquor. But until you had the economic necessity. To get rid of prohibition, it never would have made it through both two-thirds of each House of Congress and three-quarters of the state legislatures. And I guess the best illustration of how much prohibition was despised by then and how desperately people wanted liquor back is to reflect on the fact that the 36th state to ratify the amendment, the 36th state being the one that makes the amendment real, the repeal amendment, is Utah. And when Utah is the one that says bring back liquor, you know how much people wanted it back
0: yeah that's um that that is remarkable the other factor is political in the literal sense the reapportionment issue correct right so talk talk about this bizarre thing in the 20s when the 1920 census somehow doesn't make any difference
1: you know it says in the constitution that uh, there's going to be a decennial census and based on the decennial census the representation in the house of representatives will be reallocated to the states based on, on population Well, the 1920 census was the first census to show that there were more people living in the cities than in the countryside. And it was also the census that reflected the fullest, uh, um, that reflected the greatest uh, immigration um, that had been going on for the preceding 40 years. And the reapportionment would have changed the voting power in the House of Representatives substantially. So the result was that the Dries decided not to reapportion. They simply ignored the constitutional stipulation that they were supposed to reapportion. And there were reapportionment measures introduced in Congress beginning in 1921 forward until 1929, and not one of them passed. In fact, very few ever made it to the floor. They simply decided to ignore the Constitution. Uh, And it was only with the election of 1930 that you have a reapportioned Congress that really reflects the, the, the... the, the population, and you have the beginning of the possibility of, of the
0: uh, repeal amendment passing the House. So there was reapportionment and finally in 1929, is that right? 1929. It took nine years to get around doing what they were supposed to do within one year. Oh, well, they didn't have computers, you know.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, There were people who said at the time that, in fact, in fact Arthur Vandenberg, you know, a strong conservative from Michigan, he said you know, that, that what this Congress is doing is illegal. We are not really a legally constituted Congress because we never reapportioned. And a voter in, De- in in Detroit, which was one of the fastest-growing cities in the country at that time, really had one-eighth the representation of a voter from the state of Missouri. Detroit had more people than Missouri. Missouri had ten representatives. Detroit had one.
0: It's incredible. Um, if we'd gone back to previous decades, did it take – did they usually get it done within a year or two of the census? Yes,
1: always, even during the Civil War. Incredible. It had never – this had never happened before. It hasn't happened since. And for some reason, it's not in the history books. Uh, I, I, I don't get this one. I mean, there have been a couple of dissertations written about it, one pretty good book written about it, but uh, I haven't encountered, you know, even experienced American historians who had any idea about this.
0: Well, you make the analogy to the court packing, and I think that's, it's really, is, it is a really bad thing. <laughs>
1: You know, in the way it's worse, you know the court packing that 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 uh, Roosevelt tried, the uh, you know there's nothing in the in the Constitution that says there has to be nine people,
0: and it was out in the open at least. This was yeah, like a yeah, silent yeah. way to keep control of of That's things right. uh, why did you write this book what What attracted you to it, and how did you and I should just say for those of you who don't know uh, your work you've written on a very diverse set of things in your books right you 've written on baseball. Talk, talk about your, what else you've written on. And... Well,
1: you know, my, the, well, I can tell you about how I got into this one by describing what I did with my, describing my last one, uh, not counting a collection of my columns from the Times. My last book was a uh, history of Rockefeller Center. And um, it's really kind of, a, I'd like to think, a history of New York in the 20s and 30s. And while doing the research for that book, I was writing a chapter about how the Rockefeller agents acquired the ground leases to 228 separate buildings in midtown Manhattan. Not an easy task. So I disappeared into the municipal archives in New York City and uh, found that, well, two things. One, that this was the heart of the speakeasy belt in Manhattan. And of these 228 brownstones, they were mostly speakeasies, flophouses, whorehouses. It, it was a very unsavory area. Uh, and secondarily, I found that there were speakeasy owners who had more political clout than the Rockefeller family. And that made me pause and say, this is strange. Yes, Prohibition must have been an odd time. And then the minute you start thinking about Prohibition and not thinking about the movie version, the Hollywood version, or, you know, the the Robert Stack as Elliot Ness and the Untouchables think about the very fact that for 14 years it was in the Constitution that you could not make, transport, um, uh, or sell uh, alcoholic beverages. God, how the hell did that happen? (laughs) And that's what got me going on it. Uh, have we talked already about the two clauses in the Constitution that limit personal freedom? No. You know, there are only two things in the Constitution's entire history limited the freedom of individuals. The Constitution limits the powers of government, except in two respects. The 18th Amendment said you couldn't get liquor. And the 13th Amendment said you couldn't own slaves. And the notion that these two were equal, of equal weight, in the federal law, oh. in the organic <laughs> law of the nation was staggering to me. So how the hell did it happen? And I decided to spend the next 5 years of my
0: life finding out. And we are the beneficiaries. My guest today has been Daniel O'Crant, Dane. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Thank you. Very, very much. I've enjoyed it.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org where you can also comment on today's podcast